Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. This is a league of A's and B's. It's green and red and gold and black and blue. This is a league with two official languages and many unofficial languages. It's East versus West, wheat versus iron, love versus hate. This is a league where superstars are extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. It's a league of ice, of fog, of mud and wind. And for one Sunday in November, it's the nation's glue. This is a league as diverse as a country, a league of Jacksons and Kwongs, Johnsons, Moscas, O'Shea's, and Haji Razulis. This is his league, his league, her league, their league, and their league. It's my league, and it's your league. This is our league. From the 55-yard line here on CFL America Radio, it's Scott Adamson and Greg James. And today we are honored to have join us is Upton Bell, former director of personnel with the Baltimore Colts, former general manager of the New England Patriots, and former owner of the New York Stars and Charlotte Hornets of the World Football League. After football, Upton transitioned to sports broadcasting in the New England area, where he was the host of Calling All Sports, Sports Nightly, Sports Line, and Sports Beat. Upton was also the color commentator for the Boston Breakers, the Boston Celtics, Boston College and Ivy League football, and an interviewer for the Patriots pregame show. He also served as co-host of the first nationally televised, televised NFL draft on PBS in 1977. In the 1980s, Upton transitioned to talk radio in Boston, where he interviewed three presidents and countless other national figures. Upton is also the son of former NFL commissioner Burt Bell, and in 2017, he, along with Ron Borges, authored Present at the Creation, My Life in the NFL and the Rise of America's Game. Upton, welcome. And on behalf of Scott and myself, our condolences on the recent loss of your brother. And congratulations on your your um, your nuptials. Yeah, uh, just got married. And the only thing that was missing from the introduction was I was curator of mammals. Everything else is... <laughs> Everything else is, is fine. Uh, no, it's great to be with you guys. And uh, yes, I actually, this is an interesting story. The person I married, I've known for almost 50 years. And basically, she was the first, everybody talks about the first woman in sports or in, in the National Football League. She might have been 
the first in an executive position. Her name was Joanne O'Neill. She wrote uh, Coming Out of College to 27 teams in 19, I think it was 1969. And the only one that answered were the Miami Dolphins and Charlie Callahan, who hired her. And, and Joanne was so good that Don Shula offered a job to be his personal assistant. This is when he started, of course, his great run in Miami. She got, she was homesick and, and to actually turn Shula down, came to the Patriots as their assistant publicity director. And that's how I first met her. And uh, uh, basically she was there for three or four years and then left and did a lot of other things. Ended up marrying Tip O'Neill's son, Michael. And uh, he died at a very young age. My, my own wife died about 30 years ago and we end up getting back together again. And I said, you know, after 30 or 40 years, maybe it's about time. So that, that's it. We went down to the Republic of Cambridge City Hall. A week ago and got married and got a, a instead of having a big wedding party, uh, we had a hundred people out on the lawn clapping, some asleep, some from the night before, some celebrants. It was, it was, you know, a great American wedding. <laughs> love in the time of the pandemic that's that's yeah. kind of interesting <laughs> yeah it is well i know there is absolutely no question that we could ask that you haven't already been asked but it, one thing that is interesting to me is you know by the time you were born your dad was already an nfl coach and before you were 10 he's nfl commissioner your mom is a broadway star what was it like to grow up you know with larger than life parents it was great. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that many famous sons and daughters either write books or talk about how terrible it was uh, in their young life that, you know, they, they never felt wanted or they always lived in the shadow of their parents. I, you know, any phony excuse they could think of. I have a tremendous life. I mean, uh, the things that I learned before I was nine, 10 years old in being around two dynamic people, both loving uh both all of us in the same boat you know a lot of people don't know that basically Bert Bell uh other than people read his biography Bert Bell was born to one of the richest families in Philadelphia his father basically was uh a second in seniority on the Walter Camp Rules Committee and really was the founder of the modern NCAA that's that's of course before they started stealing all the players money and now they've been forced by the Supreme Court naturally to do it. But, but, but his father also owned the Ritz-Carlton in Philadelphia and was one of the, one of the major, major landholders in, in the city. And basically, I mean, when my parents first got married, I, I lived in the hotel. And then we lived in I don't know how many houses uh, because we had to move from house to house because 33 players live with us. So, I mean... Here's the former star of Broadway, Francis Upton, who was at one time engaged to Bernard Baruch's son. Baruch was one of the richest men in America. And uh, he was Jewish, he was Catholic. It, she, she decided uh, to give up. I said to her, why the hell would you give up that life and that type of money and security for Bert Bell? And she said, you know, it's really funny because at the time his father had bailed him out of so many different things. 
uh, this is after he finished Penn and he was coaching. He actually, on the day of, of 1929, the stock market crash, he had lost $100,000. Now think of what that is today. Yeah. And his father bailed him out and said, listen, Bert, I love you, uh, but but basically no more money for you. So he, he, in the end, married my mother. They got secretly married. It was announced by Walter Winchell, who broke the story, who was the biggest thing in America at that time. And basically, they went to Philadelphia. They went into the bankruptcy court. Uh, they bought, he bought <clears throat> the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets out of bankruptcy with money from my mother, renamed them on their way back. They saw the National Recovery Act Eagle up on a billboard. This is how things really happen in life. Nothing's prepared. And they uh, decided to name them the Philadelphia Eagles. And so that whole young life of mine should have been a movie a long time ago. I mean, every major person from Broadway to politics to sports came through my life at one time or another through them. And uh, it, it, to me, was a lesson on learning how to live with people, 33 football players, how to live with two dynamic parents, how to travel, how to, how to meet people, what to do, to the point when I was nine years old, I was felt, and in and, and the right way, as an adult. So to me, it, it was a tremendous life. And it, it prepared me, I think, for all of the good and bad things that happens to us if we live long enough or short enough. Now, was uh, considering what your dad did and what your mom did, did your dad have an interest in the theater and was your mom a sports fan or was that something where they just kind of went their separate ways? No, no, no. It's, it's interesting because she really introduced him to pro football. Although now a story has just come out. I mean, there's so much history on Burt Bell and, and actually Francis Upton that uh, basically I did not know this until a guy by the name of Dan Daly, who you guys ought to get on at some time, who wrote a book called The Forgotten League, which was really about football and what it was until uh, the merge of the NFL and the AFL. And he said, that's when real football ended. And he's the one that found the story that Burt Bell originally, now he, he, he and Art Looney became uh, owners in the NFL at the same time. Rooney, with the, with the Pittsburgh, at that time, they were called the Pirates, not the Steelers. And Burt Bell with the Philadelphia Eagles. And, and basically, I thought that that was when he came into the league. But he, did, he tried, or he was interested, in 1920 with the group of investors to buy into the original league. It wasn't called the National Football League then, but with... Um, the league formed with Jim Thorpe and the, where the Canton Hall of Fame is now in that Canton automobile showroom, uh, but decided to back out. And this is real history that I didn't even know about. I think I know everything about football from then all the way to today is that basically because of the 1919 Black Sox scandal, my father said, you know what? This is not a good time to buy a football team to get into a league with this hanging over all the sports head. So basically, uh, they, my, my mother 
being in show business. And her story is really fascinating because she was a 16 year old working. This, this is like people say Lana Turner was discovered in a drugstore, which was not true. But my mother was actually working in Macy's department store in the uh, perfume counter and a talent scout came through and was buying some perfume and said, you know, you're such a beautiful young woman. Would you be interested in the stage? And she said, well, I, you know, I do ballet. I'm still in high school, blah, 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 blah. And, and basically he was one of the Schubert's, which you have heard of the Schubert theaters. I think there's a Schubert theater, I think, or was at one time in Chicago. And basically he gave her his card. Five years later, Francis Upton was a star on Broadway and introduced the song Making Whoopi with Eddie Cannon. Uh, Flo Ziegfeld called her one of the most beautiful women in America had, uh, and said she had the greatest legs on Broadway. I've seen pictures of her and there's movies out there you can get on YouTube of Frances Upton. But she was a big pro football advocate. In fact, she and Ruth Edding, and I don't know if, if, if you remember Ruth Edding from the movie Love Me or Leave Me uh, with Jimmy Cagney and Doris Day. And uh, Ruth Edding was one of the biggest stars on Broadway. They were roommates and they had come to Chicago at one time. And uh, she loved the Bears, she loved pro football. But I'll tell the side story before we get into Francis Upton really saying to Burt Bell, you, re you really should uh, get into pro football, the college games, baloney, this is it. She was in Chicago and she and Ruth Edding used to sleep with guns under their pillows because Ruth was uh, Mo the Gimp Snyder who was, of course, uh, some shape or form of, of a gangster, but, but owned a lot of nightclubs in Chicago and around the country. And uh, she had fallen in love with him, but he was one of those type of people, if you ever saw her with anybody, even to say hello, uh, she always felt threatened. So they both, Francis Upton and Ruth Edding, they roomed together, but they had guns under their pillows. So there was one time in Chicago, Ruth said, uh, um, Mr. Snyder wants to take us to dinner with Al Capone. So they, they ended up going to dinner uh, and my mother was sitting across from Capone. This is in uh, Burt Bell's book on any given Sunday. And basically she, she said, oh, oh, Mr. Capone, why are we all sitting with our backs to the door and all of you are sitting with your backs to the wall? And of course, Ruth kind of kicked her and said, because if anybody comes in to try and knock off Capone and his cronies, they'll get shot first. So, I mean, that was her basic introduction to the underworld and what it was like. And in those days, you know, a lot of underworld characters invested in shows, whether it was Chicago, New York, wherever it was. So basically, she had seen pro football. She happened to meet my father at a party, I think it was for Charles Lindbergh in New York. And in those days, uh, unlike today, of course, everybody's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, TikTok, you name it. But then people got to know each other, not by, by social media. 
And if you got in a certain circle, you met everybody. And in this case, my father was at, at a party and met her. And uh, I think it was a year, two years later, they were married secretly at the time. But she said to him, you got to really get into the football. So he ended up, she would come to Philadelphia. And at that time, the Ritz-Carlton, which was owned by his father, every, every major hotel had, which was the Ritz-Carlton roof. There was a band. There, there were leading personalities that would entertain there. And the actors and actresses, when a show would close, would play the different rooftops, you know, in New York, Chicago, all of them. And she happened to be playing at the Ritz-Carlton roof. And of course, they met again. And he started to take her to games at the University of Pennsylvania, Franklin Field. Now, you have to remember, in those days, college football was so big. You know, today it's all the pro game. Nobody gave a damn about pro football. You know, basically, it was survival of the fittest. And so he began to take her to Penn games. They'd have 70,000, 80,000 people at Franklin Field, which is still one of the great stadiums in America. So after a while, she broke her engagement to Bernard Baruch, his son. And, and they kept going out. But she said to him, you know, he said, oh, I'm in love with you, honey. And she, and she said, you tell everybody that. And she said, uh, he said, well, would you marry me? And she said, number one, she said, I don't marry drunks uh, or social drinkers. And I don't particularly care for your lifestyle. So, and this is a true story. So in those days, Atlantic City, unlike the kind of seedy place it is now. Atlantic City was a big place for gambling and a lot of other things. And there's a, there's a restaurant there that's still there today called the Knife and Fork Hotel, which is actually a restaurant. And he called her from the Knife and Fork Restaurant Hotel. He said, I'm here, honey, with all my friends. And I'm saying to you tonight, that it's my last drink, I will never drink again. Everybody's laughing. And she said, we'll see. That was, I think they got married in 1933, 34. He never had a drink the rest of his life. Not one, not one drink. And, and she said, that showed me what type of person he was. And as, as one of his sons, <clears throat> One thing you knew with Bert Bell, his word was good on anything. You didn't need anything in writing, although they had it. Uh, if he told you he was going to do something, if he told you it was none of your business, whatever it was, he was truthful and he kept his word. And uh, he's about the only person I've ever met in life that truly kept their word. So that's that's a little bit of the background but i mean their life was the roaring 20s i mean it was survival it was survival of the game it was even during the war uh there's a book written about the steagles and the Pitts cardinals i think you guys are aware of, of one of the books i got in touch with one of the authors because i'm going to be coming out in sometime in the fall with the one of the largest 
collections of authors I've interviewed over 40 years at the University of Massachusetts. That's separate from the sports collection. And the, the story of how people survive. I mean, you see the glamorous, glorious NFL today. But if those people hadn't hung on, there'd be none of this. And one of the ways they hung on is when he sold the Eagles and then became equal partners with Art Rooney and the Steelers, basically, they didn't have enough money to feed the team. So how did they do it? Ingenious as they were, uh, Burt Bell decided we're going to trade one of our top players to the, back to the Eagles. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to get enough money to pay the grocery bill so our team can eat. Now, can you imagine that today? Can you imagine that any time that they, they trade the players so they can all eat? So, I mean, it, it again, it, it was... It, it's 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 the stuff of, of movies, maybe even a series of all of these different events that they took to stay alive. And of course, the biggest story, and there'd be no NFL today if Burt Bell hadn't invented the NFL draft. I mean, that saved pro football, saved sports. He came up with the idea because basically he said, no league is going to survive when the, when the Giants, the Bears, and the the Packers are always winning, and we, the have-nots, are not going to do it. You'll have, have, no, you'll have no teams in the league. In fact, since the founding of the NFL in 1920 to that time, 1935, when he proposed it, is that 20 to 30 teams went under. So people forget that, too. So, again, if he hadn't invented the draft, that was it. In fact, Arthur Daly... The, the great Hall of Fame writer of the New York Times wrote that Burt Bell did nothing else. His monument is the draft. And those and that decision, that draft alone, made teams like my Cardinals, the Eagles, made the Steelers, they made them relevant afterwards, at least for the, the time when they were up. I mean, speaking with about the Cardinals, had the draft not existed, would the Cardinals have even touched a championship or a championship game against the Eagles in the right after the war? Well, they they wouldn't, ironically. And and here's the other thing today that they're moving the draft around again everywhere for hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. Great viewership. In fact, second only to the to the um, Super Bowl is the ratings for the NFL draft. The first draft that my father held was held in his father's hotel, the Ritz-Carlton on, on Broad Street in Philadelphia, because nobody had any money. So they, they, had, they had it there. They had a blackboard up. No press came. In fact, the press was so uninterested in it. And that's the irony of today, that uh, only two weeks later did they report the draft and who was drafted. They had Street and Smith publications. You know, they call coaches, stuff like that. There was no video. There was no nothing. But here's one of the things that I know we'll get into it later on that I say about the draft is in that first draft, no video, very little contact, newspaper, Street and Smith publication. Four or three of the players went to the Pro Football Hall of Fame out of that draft. And the fourth player was Bear Bryant, who decided not to play pro football. 
So the interesting thing, too, is that Burt Bell had the first choice. Naturally, his team was always the worst. And he, he right out of Chicago, your hometown, you know, basically he drafted the first draft and the, the player that he drafted basically decided not to play. He said, I'm not going to do it. And he actually traded his rights to the Chicago Bears and he wouldn't he would not sign with them either. So basically he came up handed on his team and, and at least initially. But again, in the end, uh, that draft saved everybody. But the other thing is this. Uh, the percentage of people who made that first draft versus the percentage today with videos and personal scoutings and, and uh, uh, pro days and the combine in Indianapolis soon to be sold to another city too, is basically the average hasn't changed. Two things have not changed in pro football. The first thing is the average life for pro football player then was three and a half years. It has not changed. The, the average of players make it in the pro football draft are almost the same as that very first draft. So that tells you all about all the people, the slide rules, the analytics, the videos, the tricks, and everything else like that. It basically has not changed. And, um, you know, talking about the draft, when you were with the Baltimore Colts, you were obviously involved deeply in the drafts during the 60s, especially with during that time of Operation Babysitter. So did the, in your experience from seeing the draft being born to the draft when you were with the Colts, did a lot of things hit, did a lot, did things change during those 30 years or was it still more or less the same going into the draft in the sixties rather than say with back in the thirties? Well, what, what, what did change? And I adopted a lot of the changes uh, because I, I, I don't believe in living in the past. Uh, what, what, what were beginning to come in were computers, which we did. Dallas was even deeper into it. Uh, 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 IQ tests, which are really what you call Wonderlic tests. And uh, a lot of other things. Paul Brown had brought in the timing in the 40-yard dash. He had also brought in intelligence tests and stuff like that. I, I did a, a lot of that. Uh, but, but in the end, with everything that you have, it's still, even today, this latest draft, it's still a calculated guess because the measurables, particularly in football, are very hard to tell. Do you really know that that person can make the jump from college football to the pros, even though they play mainly a pro passing game in college now? Of course, the quarterbacks never call their own plays, which is the reason I have trouble rating the top quarterbacks uh, for the Hall of Fame. But, but basically, uh, with all of those things there, how do you know what the person's heart is? How do you know how they're going to react in a crucial time? How do you know how they're going to react when, when they go from college and now, even though they're very, very big in college, to playing against somebody every play that's 350 pounds? Uh, there's, there's so many variables 
uh, for football, unlike, uh, you know, baseball, you can measure things and now they use analytics almost to the point of exhaustion. And, and basketball, I played in college. I know the game. There's certain things if you can, if, if you can hit the three point shot, if, if you can play good on one, if you have certain physical abilities, you're going to make it. The pro game, there are just too many variables uh, to be right. If you're, if you're better than 50%, you're pretty damn good. I know during your, uh, your scouting days, one of the things that really uh, about your book that, that I guess it hit close to home to me being a, you know, someone who's from Birmingham, you talked about, you know, being in the South and dealing with, you know, how badly the African-American players were treated at the time. And you were actually, I believe, driving to Montgomery during yep. the bloody, bloody Sunday March. And that, that really seemed in the way you wrote about it in the book that, I mean, you were obviously aware of what was going on, but that seemed to have a, a real effect on you. Selma did, and, and being in Memphis the day Martin Luther King was murdered. Uh, but, but also, I mean, I knew certain things before the first time I really hit the road. Uh, and in those days, unlike today, especially for spring practice, you would get in a car and you'd drive from Baltimore. And, and I, I would leave in the you know, middle end of January and I'd come home till maybe mid-May. And you live out of a car, you go to live in hotels and motels, you go through big cities, little cities. I mean, I, I, I thought about doing, by the way, a second book. Uh, I've driven every part of the lower 48 states. I've been to all 50 states, but I drove them during a time when parts of it, even though Eisenhower in 53 had pushed through the, the super highways, and now we're dealing with the same problem in 2021. But, but I drove a lot of roads, mainly in the South. I mean, I can remember leaving Baltimore, going through the Shenandoah Valley, uh, in, 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 in from Virginia, through Georgia, through Alabama, Tennessee. I mean, where the highways were not super highways. I mean, you drive over hills, you, you're lucky if you could you know, drive 30 miles an hour in some places. But I really learned America. And uh, one of the things that I could see is that basically you now I was at the time when I first started out 24, 25 years old. Most scouts never got a scouting job in those days to you're in your 40s or 50s. Now that I looked like I was 16 years old. And luckily I had with me a card that said, you know, I work for the Baltimore Cultures. I've said a few times to people, I probably would have been dead. I probably, you drive through some of those towns and I, and I want to be perfectly clear. I'm not here to indict the South because there's prejudice everywhere. I, I said, first time I came to Boston, I remember calling back to Baltimore and telling my wife at that time, my God, I'm on, this is balkanized. I said, I haven't, I haven't seen an African-American yet. And, and I live right downtown Boston in the early years. So back to the South, which is one of the most beautiful places I've ever driven. Uh, but it, it was totally segregated. And I could see that. And I could also see, I remember one time I discussed this, I think in my book, is that 
basically I was stopped in a small town. Uh, and it wasn't in Alabama, it was in Mississippi. And a, a, a policeman said to me, what are you doing here, boy? And I said, well, I work for the Colts. I'm here to scout players. And he laughed at me. I, 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 I can understand because, again, I looked like I was 16 years old. And they're not used to seeing somebody. They're used to seeing if somebody said, I work for the Colts and they look like they're 50 or 60, you know, you just keep on moving. But there was a suspicion I could tell because that was in the middle of the time when the Freedom Riders were coming from the North to, to register people to vote. And I think he thought, because he asked me, are you one of them goddamn Freedom Riders? I said, no, I'm not I'm with the Colts. Uh, but each place I went through, I said, you know, a slip here, a slip there. If they don't believe you, where do you think you're going to end up? Because there, there were no choice. I mean, you could disappear, and they, in many cases, they never find the body. And I realized that, um, <clears throat> what it was. And I would constantly, scouts in those days would keep the radio on their car for two reasons. One, so they wouldn't fall asleep at night, because when you finish one campus, you drive to another. The other thing is to try and avoid any of the violence that was going on. And uh, I, I remember one time flying it, no, driving to Jackson, Mississippi. And then I was going to go down the Natchez Trace, which is absolutely gorgeous. And basically to go to Al Corn A&M, which is out in the middle of, in Lorman, Mississippi. I mean, there's a gas station or there was a, it's a gas station, the campus, and that's about it. And uh, on that Natchez Trace, you know, people were shooting each other. You know, the, Police were firing, people were picking people off. And I'm saying, what the hell is this? It's, you know, what, what is going on? Well, you're in the middle of, of one of the most violent periods. If we think it's bad today, we're in the, one of the most violent periods in America's history at that time. It's almost like the Civil War was being refought. But one of the things that I found is, you know, many of the campuses, except for Jackson State, were isolated. You know, Grambling was out in the middle of nowhere. You know, many of the other places, Alcorn, you have to drive a couple hours at least to get there. So all of those places that I went to, uh, you could see what one of the presidents of one of the places had said to me, you know, you can stay here if you want to overnight. There's, you know, violence going on out there. Or you can go out and maybe get shot. And, and, you know, and, and at that time, you're 24, 25, 26 years old, you think, you know, you're immortal. And so I always chose to leave. One time I did stay, um, thinking uh, they're not going to kill somebody from the Colts. Well, they are going to kill somebody from the Colts or any place else if there's any suspicion. So what, what I felt about that is, number one, you know, I'm going to the Alabamas, the Tennessees, the real powers, uh, the, the Georgias, the Georgia Techs, uh, you know, all, all of those big time schools. But I kept saying the best players I see are at all the African-American schools. You know, they're, they're, they're really better. I can remember going 
to Prairie View A&M and seeing a player by the name of Otis Taylor, who later played the great receiver of the Kansas City Chiefs. And he isn't the only one. And, and I remember saying to myself, I don't need to see any film on this guy. I just watch him at practice. This, this guy's as good as any receiver I've seen. Uh, but what happened was that many of the teams basically said, well, yeah, but they're playing the same competition. We can't see the film or it's not good or this or that. And I'd say, well, this guy's a first round choice. And I'd say maybe fourth or fifth round. And, and I, I saw that, you know, the feeling was, well, these schools weren't as good as. And the one thing that changed, I think, football is the <clears throat> AFL, the American Football League, were the ones, the NFL drafted a lot of African-Americans, but the AFL, <clears throat> they were building. And they, they went in and drafted a lot of, of African-American players. Uh, that were part of their league, so there there was a big difference there, and and it was it was an era of violence. It was an era of racism. It was an era of of danger, but yet it was also an era of what I saw as the beginning of of just the African American dominating football. And I remember saying to somebody, this was late sixties. I said, someday the NFL is going to be predominantly African-American. That was, and it is today. It's now, it, it will, it's 70%, it'll be almost 80%. But I, I, I have great feeling for those players of that time that did not get drafted high, but were really some of the greatest players I've ever seen. So it, it, it I, I am glad that I had that experience for almost 10 years because it not only told me, taught me about sports, but it gave me a great history lesson of America, being near Selma, dealing with gold, pulling into gas stations where it would say white or blacks, in some cases, the N-word, and being threatened in one place uh, because I disagreed with it. I could have got my brains blown out. And then ending up in Memphis, uh, at Memphis State for spring practice. And I usually stay two days at every school. And the coach, the only time in my life saying to me, uh, Mr. Bell, I think you should go home. I said, what for? what I do? And he said, uh, basically, he said, there's going to be trouble here tomorrow. Martin Luther King is coming in to lead the garbageman strike. And he said, there could be violence here. So I took his advice. I went back the hotel. I canceled my reservation for that night, made a, a reservation on a plane, took the plane out of Memphis, got back to Baltimore's Friendship Airport, looked up on the monitor, Martin Luther King murdered. You know, that that left a deep impression on me too. I mean, it, I was part of that era and uh, I, I not only will never forget it, but it's the lessons that you learn about the inequities of life on all sides. And so that's part of American history. And I'm, I'm glad I lived through it. And you lived through, I mean, so much. I mean, the 60s was, you know, the most turbulent time, at least in the modern history, um, even, you know, and even including this past year. 
and you you worked for two head co- two of the greatest head coaches one of the from my understanding one of the greatest owners ever and mike i guess my next question is what was it like to work for webu bank and then having to switch gears to work with don shula during which you worked for an owner like carol rosen well first of all i worked for three Hall of Fame coaches, Weave Eubank, Don Shula, and Chuck Knoll. I actually, I picked Chuck Knoll up at the airport. And, and uh, I remember the first thing we had this long discussion driving back from the airport. I immediately could tell this guy's completely different. This is an intellectual actually coaching football. And uh, I said to him, I said, this is great. You're going to be joining John Unitas, we have one of the greatest offenses in football. This is great for you. Defense is okay. And he said, let me tell you one thing. He said, defenses win championships, not offenses. He said, you get to the biggest. He's lecturing me on the way back in the car. We don't even know each other. And uh, he and I became very close friends. And when we lost the Super Bowl in 1968 uh, to the Jets, and a new, through no fault of the defense, the offense just had a terrible day. We're walking down after the game, and I'm walking down with Dan Rooney. And, of course, I was very close to the Rooney's. And I said to him, forget us losing the game. I said, I know you're interviewing other people, but Chuck Knoll's the best person for you. I said, I called your father earlier in the year when you were, they were looking at Nick Scorch of the Eagles and some other people, and I said, Mr. Rooney, I said, Chuck Knoll is going to be a great coach. He is already. And uh, I told Danny that, and about three weeks later, they hired Chuck Knoll. Now, I'm not saying I'm the only one that, that said it, but I think they trusted my word. Uh, but Knoll was really brilliant. All three were brilliant in their different ways. Uh, but it, it, it was... It was a great education, but you know, what people forget is I'm really the son of a quarterback and a coach. So I knew quarterbacks. I knew coaches. Now, my father was not a great pro coach because he didn't have enough money. And I still think that Burt Bell, with all his great achievements, uh, basically has still the losingest record in NFL history. I think it's still there. I think ESPN had it on, I don't know, about a year or so ago, just comparing stuff. So anyway, I knew how to judge coaches. I knew uh, how to look at quarterbacks. And basically, we Viewbank was, was a great organizer, much underrated. He's in my top 10 coaches of all time. He won the two biggest games in history. The sudden death game, which changed pro football forever, and the 68 game against us, the Colts, that, that solidified the merger. And uh, Shula was different. He was fiery, tough, um, and he and the United clashed constantly. But you could see he was going to be a great coach. I felt the same way about all three. I knew that. As far as the owner is concerned, this is another interesting story in that 
when Bert Bell was looking for, as commissioner, looking for somebody to go back to Baltimore because the Colts had failed the first time around, <clears throat> he, he remembered uh, a, a player that he had coached at Penn by the name of Carol Rosenblum. I wonder how many people know this story. <clears throat> Rosenblum had decided to leave Penn with Marty Brill and go to Notre Dame. He decided that he wanted, he didn't like Penn, he was unhappy with it. My father talked him out of it and said, stay here, let Brill go to Notre Dame. And Brill did go to Notre Dame and came back a couple of years later and beat Penn. <clears throat> but my father remembered Rosenblum had become, his father was very, very wealthy, but he wanted somebody in the pro game <clears throat> that had experience, but also had the money. He had to beg Rosenblum to do it, and Rosenblum finally decided, okay, I'm going to do it. I, I have a copy of the bill of sale with Burt Bell signed to Rosenblum, and he came in as the owner and was tremendous except for one problem, gambling, which they never totally proved. He was great to work for. He knew everybody who was close to the Kennedys. I used to drive footballs over to the White House. That's a whole other separate part of my life, my first assignment. And uh, actually, he had a plane that, that used to fly the players to Hyannisport in the offseason to play touch football with Jack and Bobby Kennedy and the rest of the Kennedys. He, he knew everybody. He was uh, interesting, strange. And all the things that you would want to see in somebody that was really an interesting character. But he did the have that hanging over his head almost to the very end. And that's the only reason I think why he wasn't in the Hall of Fame or is not in the Hall of Fame. But the other thing is, everybody talks about Dallas, which is a great organization, was. And some of the great in pro football. But here's the Colts. I became a general manager, whether good or bad. George Young, my assistant who I hired, became manager of the New York football giants and now just been inducted to the Hall of Fame. Ernie, of course, he general manager of three teams. Harry Humes, general manager of two teams. Three coaches in the NFL Hall of Fame, eight, 10 players in it. We sent more people out of the Colts into other organizations than any other team in history. And this is before everything that you see today. Uh, it was an amazing place to work. They were amazingly talented people. Uh, there was a camaraderie uh, uh, there. I remember one time, I think Rosenblum pulled the team out of Birmingham for a preseason game. The African-American players came and, and, and said, you know what? We can't eat in a, waste, a, a restaurant with our own players. And he pulled them out and we never played in the South again uh, as far as a preseason game. In those days, they were called exhibition games. So it, it, it was... If I could have, when I came to the Patriots as a general manager, 
I want to institute all those things that you saw <clears throat> with winning football. But what I saw and learned is that I was able to bring in four, four scouts that all end up being head scouts or general managers, Bucko Kilroy as my director of player personnel, Peter Hattie. I brought in a lot of people went on to bigger jobs. But what I could not correct was ownership. If you don't have a good owner, you're not going anywhere. And, and basically, I've always repeated what Ron Borges, my co-author of, the, of, the, of my book, said is you're either an owner or a renter. So really, we were all renters. And in this case, there were owners fighting among each other. I, I wanted to get rid of the coats and a whole many other things. So what I'm saying is, no matter how much talent you have, if you can't control the situation, you aren't going anywhere. So there, there were many things there, but what I learned and what I was around, it was really like being present at the creation. One thing uh, with the Patriots, younger fans, they know nothing other than the New England Patriots. And guys like Greg and I, we remember the Boston Patriots. What about the Bay State Patriots? That's kind of lost to history. And I know you had a big hand in, in making sure that didn't happen. Well, I got off the plane for my first press conference and I read the Boston Globe. And the, and the Boston Globe had a headline, Patriots to be renamed Bay State Patriots. And short was BS for Billy Sullivan. And I thought, oh, my God, got to do something about this. And I said, well, the team is moving to Foxborough, which is midway between Boston and Providence in the middle of New England. Why not call them the New England Patriots? So I went to the board and I proposed this. See, they had a board of directors. It wasn't one owner. And finally got it pushed through the New England Patriots, and it paid off because uh, we went from like eight or 10,000 season tickets to almost 50,000 uh, that, that first year. But it, it was a draw, and it still is now from all over. So <laughs> that, that was as wild a time as any, but I was able to get that push through. That just seemed like such a... You know, I, I pride myself on knowing a lot about NFL history, but I keep forgetting that that was ever even considered, you know, not that it would have necessarily changed anything. It might have changed the logo or whatever, but that just, you know, now, you know, when you think of the New England Patriots, I can't imagine a team called the Bay State Patriots. It just, it seems like it would be the name for an arena team or something. You remember Judy Collins' song, Send in the Clowns? Absolutely. That was it. I mean, it, you, you, no matter what you prepare yourself for in life, you never know till you get there. And there were actually, there were some owners that I'd spoken to, that I'd known for a long time that told me not to go. Uh, but basically when you just turn 33, uh, you think you can cure everything. And, and basically, you know, I wasn't Jonas Salk. I couldn't. I couldn't, you know, inject people and make them feel better uh, or, or change their attitude. So 
That's no, you're absolutely right. Well, I'm, I mean, I cringe when I saw that Bay State Patriots. I said, "Holy Christ, this this is really what am I getting into here?" Uh, and, so, in fact, the, the first question at my press conference was asked by Jack Clary, uh, who was writing then for the Boston Herald, but actually wrote the book on the life of Paul Brown. And he said, he said, Mr. Bell, he said, why would somebody that came from a great championship team, uh, the Baltimore Colts, winners of Super Bowls, playoffs, why would you come to a team like this? That was the first question. And at the Boston media, as you know, is pretty tough. And uh, they had seen a lot of bad things happen here. And I just said, you know, something like, we can improve this, blah, blah, blah. But that was the first question. That, that was a shout across the bow, get ready. And what was, and I'm too young to remember this, but why, the reason why they decided to change the name, was it because of the move to Foxborough? Was it, was it for, no, I mean, and back so then the, marketing, marketing really wasn't big. So I, I've always wondered why they changed the name. Oh, because because of that. Well, you got you got to understand what was going on here. I mean, Sullivan always claimed it wasn't, you know, tribute to him the BS Patriots. Um, but they 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 felt, which I thought was wrong, is since we're moving to Foxborough, and Boston essentially threw them out or wouldn't build anything for them. That 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 they wanted to represent the whole state of Massachusetts, and that's where they came up with the Bay State thing. They were not going to continue to call it the Boston Patriots. Most teams, like the Lions and 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 the Washington team, they're not in Washington anymore, and the Lions haven't been for years, but they're still called the Detroit Lions. But they didn't do that here, and I couldn't convince them the Boston name. So I said, here, here's what you need to do. Call to New England Patriots. In fact, it's funny, Dan Shaughnessy had called me a couple of times over the years and said, you're the guy that named the New England Patriots. They should have been the Boston Patriots. And I said, you know, basically you're right. But they weren't going to go for that. They had been like somebody who had made how many proposals to say in Boston. They tried to come back when Bob Kraft bought the team, they tried for South Boston. You know, it just, it wasn't that, that by then that they weren't really popular. Boston just didn't want them. They, they, and they didn't want the traffic problems. They didn't want all the things that were going to happen to them. So they decided that's it. Well, jumping to another league entirely, and Greg knew I was going to get to this point because I'm, I'm, borderline obsessed with the old world football league and i just um you know when you bought the stars turned them in i guess they were what the charlotte stars for a game before you changed the name to the hornets i just kind of like to know that that wild ride for one of my favorite leagues that that died way too soon <laughs> i'm telling you i kept thinking geez i'm reliving bird fell's dream in a league, who knows whether they're going to make it or not. And uh, basically, I had spoken to, to Howard Baldwin, who was one of the founders of the league, as well as the WHA, which 
then merged with the NHL. And basically he wanted me, came to see me and he wanted me to take a franchise in the league. He said, your name, Burt Bell's name, be great for this young league. He first, he, he had a team here in Boston that they then moved to New York and became the stars and got Bob Smirch at the time, owned the Celtics, but was in financial trouble. And they moved it to New York. And he said um, he knew that the stars were in trouble financially, even in New York, and tried to make a deal with the famous producer, David Merrick. I don't know if you remember his name. And uh, Merrick, but they asked for too much money. So he said, why don't I have you sit down with Smurfs, which I did do in New York. And next thing I know, I got an option to buy the team. And I had scouted Charlotte for many years when I was a scout with the Colts and felt this was really good territory. They're already in Atlanta, but Charlotte was growing. It's in the middle of North and South Carolina. It's got a lot of fans to draw from. So I proposed take them to Charlotte, North Carolina. We packed the team up after uh, a game, night game and Randall's Island, and uh, took them to Charlotte, and basically uh, sold tickets out of a out of a local motel, and sold the game out uh, in like two or three days. And our opening game was the Memphis Southland, soon to get sunk at Kicker Moorefield. And uh, you know, again, things were going really going well. I mean, the city loved it. They had a parade. The mayor honored me. I'm telling you, like. It was like mana from heaven. Uh, it's like entering Jerusalem. Here we are. And I got Arnold Palmer to invest in the team. And he actually gave me a gold Cadillac. We signed a TV contract. We, uh, we did everything. The problem is that the league was having financial problems. And some teams were already either going out of business or near going out of business, but still it was a league. I, I liked a lot of the new things, the action point, the dicker rod, the, uh, the wide open game. And uh, it, it, just, it just really appealed to me, understanding as I went along that they were going to have to do something about the failing franchises. But I'm saying to myself, that happened in the NFL too. Year, of course, years and years ago. But basically, Charlotte was perfect. In fact, if, if the league had lasted, Charlotte would have been one of the major franchises. And, and actually, I ran a contest to rename the stars. And, and we finally, the Charlotte News ran the contest. And uh, we did, they were named the Hornets just before the opening game against Memphis which Arnold Palmer attended and half of Cafe Society of Charlotte did. And it was a great night, even though we lost an opening game. It was on the front page of the Charlotte News and Observer and all over the South. I mean, this was a big deal. Uh, but and it, 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 it was one of the most fascinating experiences. We had more crazy things happen. <clears throat> you know, the, the, at the, the end of the first year, what began to happen was that Bob Smurts owed a lot of people a lot of money and all the creditors were coming to Charlotte to collect their money from me. 
instead of going after Schmerz. So finally, we had to form a separate kind of, uh, it wasn't a corporation, uh, a general partnership with me as a general partner to protect against all the debts that we had. But uh, again, I, I would say if, if the league, and we had, a, we had a deal going basically uh, the second year, they had a thing called the Hemeter Plan, which basically was a really brilliant thing. And we, we were one of the few teams that really adhered to it is that a player was going to get a percentage of the gate uh, in, instead of, uh, you know, you'd have a small guarantee, but this way a team could survive because if, if you didn't have a great gate one night, he would get less. If you had a, a better gate, he would get even more. It, it, it could have worked, but then some people in the league dropped it and went out and started to sign big name players again. And it's funny because when you look at it, all of the innovations, all the things that they did were really good if they could have lasted. But again, I don't think any league is going to last against the NFL, but there were so many incidents involved. One, George Sauer, we had some great players. In fact, Gary Danielson was still doing football for the NCAA on the SBN. He couldn't even start for us. He, and he ended up going to the Lions and playing for them for quite a while. Uh, and we, I mean, there are crazy things like uh, we were playing the Florida Blazers with the, uh, Jack Pardee as a coach who ended up coaching the Redskins two years later. They're a terrific team, except they run out of money and I'm sitting in my office. <clears throat> the game sold out. <clears throat> And the, they, they're in court and the judge calls me from the court and he said, uh, Mr. Bell, I'm not going to let this team leave here unless you're willing to pay their way up and their game chips. Can you imagine this? Jesus. <clears throat> so that's what I did. I, I agreed to pay their airfare up and their game checks. And they beat us actually in that they actually went to the finals of the World Cup. Uh, uh, which was called that that year. I remember shaking hands with Bob Davis, who had played at Virginia, pretty good quarterback in the WFL. And he said, Mr. Bell, thank you for the win and thank you for the check. <laughs> and the checks to the players that just beat us. I mean, you couldn't make it up. And there were so many things. I, 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 it it uh, afforded me the opportunity you sit down for three hours, one of the most brilliant men I've ever met, Ted Turner, who had one of his TV stations was in Charlotte that did our games. And he said, if, if, because that was the year that there was a strike in the NFL, if you remember early on. And actually NBC had called me and asked me uh, if, if uh, the strike continued, would, would I be interested in having our games on there? I said, absolutely. But Ted Turner said, I'll put you on all throughout the South with all my stations. He said, you know, we'll compete with the NFL. And in that same meeting, which I wrote in my book, he said to me, you know, a few years from now, I'm going to try this experiment. He said, I'm not sure whether they can make it or not. But a 24-hour cable news network. I remember saying to him, 
uh, something like good luck. I don't think it'll make it. <laughs> That's the last time I saw him. Uh, but all of the people that I met through that, like John Bassett, who died way too early, brilliant guy. Actually, I met Elvis Presley because we were playing in Memphis the next year. And Bassett had talked him into, you know, just a small ownership part, but to use his name. <clears throat> and he said, do you want to meet the king? And I'm thinking to myself, well, who, Leopold? And, and he took me into a room, introduced me to Elvis. And I'll never forget uh, the Elvis that I was used to seeing on the screen. By then he was bloated, sw sweating, was very, very nice, hardly said anything. And he was dead, I think, what, a couple of years later. But you could see, sad for me to see something like that, the deterioration of somebody who really was the king. So, again, that league had everything. Do you know that there is still founded in Charlotte a, a fan club uh, 40, what is it, 41 years later, still a Hornets fan club, keeping track of all the players, their lives. Richie Franklin is the head of it. Charlotte Hornets fan club. Go online and see it. Oh, yeah, I know Richie. Uh, yeah, he and I are, are WFL nerds together. He's a great guy. Well, the thing is, I've outlived practically all our players. I'm saying, how the hell did that happen? <clears throat> but uh, yeah, it, 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 <clears throat> that's the one league. The USFL had the most talent. And Donald Trump killed that like he kills everything. Sold that league out, that bum. Uh, but the WFL had all of the innovations, all of the things that you were looking for. Uh, and again, some pretty smart people. But the one thing that might have saved it Basically, we had a meeting second year, and there was a motion. Uh, Chris Hemeter, who had the Hemeter plan that we we're talking about, had basically talked. Uh, I think it's Jimmy Walsh, who was Joe Namus' agent, and and thought they could come to an agreement that Namus would sign for a lot of money in our league, and we had secretly decided the way you protect him and your product, because the, we, we had talked to some of the networks and they were really interested if we could get Namath. And the private deal was that we'd never really tackled Namath because of his knees. We just run by him and pretend like we got knocked off of it. I said, this is, this is really unbelievable. But that's where we were, we were figuring out ways where he still had a big name. He was near the end of his career only because of his knees, which were never good from the very first time he came in. And basically what happened is greedy owners are not just in the NBA, NFL, baseball, and hockey. They're everywhere. And two or three of them killed the deal because they felt that uh, they weren't getting enough money out of it, that what it would cost with the networks and for Namath. And I said, are you crazy? You know, basically we're on our last legs, but we couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. 
And because of that, there's no lake. Well, one bit of trivia I, I do remember is uh, I was a kid in Birmingham at the time, and the Charlotte Hornets played the Birmingham Balkans at Legion Field. They and screwed us. We had the game won. I remember running down to Jack Goda, who was their, their general manager. I said, Jack, you keep letting the clock run. The game should be over. And he looks at me, you know, like, and he was a good guy. But that's the game you're talking about, the, the one in Birmingham. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. That was the first day game that the that it, the first day game in the WFL to ever be played in Birmingham. That was just, you know, kind of an odd piece of trivia. But, you know, the first season, the games are on Wednesday and Thursday at night. And then yeah. they went to a weekend schedule the second season, or at least as long as they made it through the second season. But that was – that was just weird to see the the team playing during the day, you know, considering their entire history had been played at night. Oh, well, it, it was, and, and it was a game that uh, I thought, I mean, we, we ended up, we were one of the few that stuck to the Hemeter plan, and yet uh, I think we were either leading or tied for the division lead, and uh, we lost that game. They let the clock keep running. I mean, anything is possible in the WFL, but that we had, we had a tremendous coaching staff. Every one of our coaches went on the NFL. And of course, Bob Gibson, who I had a lot, a lot of admiration for, uh, I eventually went to the Giants and that terrible call that he had cost him his career. If you remember where they had the game won against the Eagles and instead of uh, just having the quarterback, you know, Neil, they handed off to Zonka, who fumbled, and who was it? Who's who just got fired as a coach? I think at Arizona. Herm Edwards. Herm Edwards. Herm Edwards picked it up and ran in for a touchdown. Cost cost John McVeigh, who was his coach at Memphis, and then uh, him their jobs. And it's really a shame because he was a tremendous coach. And we our our, our whole Lindy and Fonte ended up being the head coach of the Packers, one of my coaches. Herb Patera went to the Rams. We, every, every, A lot of our players went immediately, we were that good, into the NFL, and three or four of our coaches were hired immediately. Of course, Lindy and Fonte ended up being the head coach of the, uh, of the Green Bay Packers. So it was, it. listen, in the end, I don't care how much money you have or don't have. It's the experience. And I lost my shirt there, my pants, buckle and sneakers, but I will never, that was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. And it continued to teach lessons about life, people, and you gotta have enough money or you ain't gonna make it. And from there, you embarked on a, a new career right after that um, on television and on radio. So it, to me, I mean, in reading your life story and just uh, so much history you lived through, you came out on the, on the positive end of everything. And um, it is, you know, and Scott and I, we, we, were, we were discussing who we wanted to interview next for our show. I looked at the, um, you know, I looked at my bookshelf and I saw your book and I go, we've got to get Upton Bell to talk. Um, and even though we're not talking about Canadian football today, which is what we normally do, 
you are so much a part of football history, both north and south of the border, and probably in ways that north of the border that you probably don't, we none of us realize yet. Um, any, any suggestions kind of moving forward now? We're in the 21st, in the 21st century. We've got all these new leagues popping up. Any advice to even the CFL and these new leagues? How do you, for them to be successful? What do you think they got to do? Moving well, forward? first and foremost, I, I want to tell you, I know a lot about the Canadian Football League. I used to go to the Grey Cup and scouted players in the Grey Cup. Uh, there, there were times, you know, the famous 1946 championship game that my father again stepped in and helped save pro football. He later banished Frankie Filchuk and Merrill Hapeson, and they end up signing in the Canadian Football League. Uh, I am very familiar with it. I'm very familiar with the rules. I like it a lot. Uh, I like the idea that, you, you know, basically you only have three downs. And there, there are many things about And there have been many terrific players that have come out of the Canadian Football League. I, th I think the real danger would be if an NFL team went there. I know the Buffalo Bills talked about it, but there's, there's certain things that I think and why I like the Canadian Football League. And there were talks about merger at one time and they sued, I think my father in the NFL way, way back. There was the Radovich case. And people like Jim Trimble, who coached the Eagles, coached there, was very successful. Bud Grant, who was there, uh, there, there, there's a history there, and there's certain things that I think should remain. And I, I would hope, and I, but I do think the NFL is somewhere along the line looking about going in there, or will, that there's a tradition there. There's, there's a feeling about it. I watch a lot of Canadian football because I can get on the ESPN. I like the whole idea of it. Uh, and you don't have to, you know, for a league to be good, for a tradition to be there, you don't need every 360 pound all American from somewhere. Uh, you just need a good league, good competition. Uh, and there's a lot of national pride at Canadian Football League. And I like that. Um, not, not everything, you know, has to be with a mercenary situation. And again, maybe I'm a dreamer about that. But, you know, we need dreams. We need, we need, that's a national, it's, it's like hockey. They'll always be the Canadians and Toronto will always be blowing their chance to go somewhere. Uh, and it's almost like hockey in Canada is, is a separate thing, even though they're part of the NHL. But that tradition of the Canadian Football League, I hope was always there. I mean, I, I remember one time going to, I was scouting a couple of players. This was 19, I want to say 67, 68. I went to the Grey Cup and it was in Montreal. And uh, Trudeau was, was, I mean, he was it, the prime minister. He was it, had the hot, you know, wife, girlfriend, everything else like that. And I remember him coming to the game and he had a fur coat on and 
prancing out on the field like he was Mick Jagger. I mean, and and I remember the hotel I was staying in, there were people actually on horse riding in the lobby. And I'm saying, this is a wild west. This is the way it should be. So again, just I I have a lot of admiration for the CFL. I hope it's always there. Yeah. And you know, it's funny you're talking about the CFL and I've always, in the years that I've been watching it, now, of course, you know, really in the States, unless you've lived in an area, say, like Detroit or maybe Seattle on the border cities, getting CFL games is really hard to do. But obviously, in the last 20 years with ESPN, we're all able to watch the CFL. And in watching the CFL, I've always got it. It's always reminded me of the league of the NFL back when your father was commissioner of the NFL. A very, you know, it, it was a working man's league. And it's the CFL is a working man's league, much like the NFL was back when your father was commissioner. And back in the 60s when you worked, when you were with the Colts and even with, you know, the Patriots. So do you see the same thing with the CFL being more a working man's league oh, it, than compared to what we have now in the it, NFL? It is. And, and I will say this, that <clears throat> I was part of for, with Ray Dittinger, uh, who was at that time head of NFL films. Uh, if you get a chance to want to take a look at it, he put together a thing called the fabulous fifties of the NFL. And as soon as it hit 1960, in some ways it really changed, you know, the great football games, you know, throwing 30, 40 times a game, everything else like that. It was a working man's league. And, and now for the players, even though their contracts are not guaranteed out outside of the first year, you know, they're making millions of dollars, even though their life is, again, only three and a half years in short. <clears throat> and again, somebody who likes the modern game don't live in the past, but I think we've lost something. <clears throat> I think we've, and part of it is what you and I are doing today. Uh, this is good. Social media now uh, I was watching a, one of the old ESPN things last night uh, with Steve Sable, who I knew well and his father do, did a great job with NFL films. They were asking a, a lot of the players that, that weren't out of football that long about the celebrations. I call them orgasm after <clears throat> it's, it's orgasm after a sack. And they are basically saying that if we did this when we were playing, if we did any of the celebration, whether it's for a touchdown or anything else, our own players would say something, which I've always said to us, you know, th th this would never go. What the hell are these people thinking? And what I would basically answer to that is that social media now, every player has their own Twitter account. Instagram, and I, I like mystery in sports like I do in life. There's no mystery now. I mean, you, it's in some ways, it's made the media, the writer, absolutely, because like we saw in the locker room when uh, in the Pittsburgh Steelers locker room three or four years ago, when the coach is talking to the team after the game, and one of the players is not only recording it, but he's giving his own interview. And so the, the constant promotion 
of it. Listen, I love social media. I'm t- on Twitter. I'm on everything else, but I'm not playing, and 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 I'm not promoting, you know, millions of dollars or anything else like that. And good for them. They do that, but there's no mystery. You can go into the locker room. You're on the sideline. You can hear everything the quarterback says. Every play is called in. Uh, where, where is the chance in the game? Where is some mystery? There is none. You know, that's, I mean, the other night watching the, I think it was the warm up before the Bucks Atlanta game. And, and basically, these guys are sitting on the bench getting ready to go out and shoot. They're on their phones. And, and I remember one, one of the football players who does a talk show here in Boston was saying, you know, when we used to uh, uh, basically not that long ago, we would go in, we'd be in the weight room, we'd, we'd be in the rehab room. We would be talking about the game. We'd talk about game plans. We'd be talking about the sport. Now guys are on their phone. They don't even talk to each other. You know, they're, they're whatever it is. This has nothing to do with saying the past was better. But I ask you, in a, in a sport, particularly in football, where it is really important for team cohesion, I mean, if, if I were the coach, I'd say, hey, just like Wyatt Earp said in Dodge City, Check your guns before you come to town. Don't bring your any 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 type of, of a cell phone or anything in here. It just again, and probably the people who play fantasy football love all this stuff hearing everything else like that will say, no, we want to know everything. But I think we've lost something. I don't know whether you guys agree or not, but I think we have. Oh, I definitely agree. Yeah, I do too. I do. Um, and I know, you know, like talking about, you know, how things were, I was actually, I was watching uh, NFL network, just like you were yesterday <laughs> watching the Steve Sable yeah. and everybody. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there is a, uh, yeah, we've lost something. I mean, in my, my opinion, social media is great to get the word out, but it is in many ways destroyed. I mean, let's not even talk about America itself with social media, yeah. just the game itself. Um, it's great for fans. Yeah. C- CFL Twitter is awesome during the weekends when the <laughs> CFL is playing. Um, same way with, with Facebook and the NFL talking amongst. But, yeah, I agree. I, I agree. that People should check, you know, much like we have to do at work, check the phones at the door. And uh, so, Upton, we really, really appreciate you coming on. And I know we're running, we're running up, about ready to – the clock's about ready to run out on us on our Zoom chat. And, um, but you know, we are just so honored just to talk to you because so much fun. Yeah. So much fun. You you guys don't have to be honored. I'm honored, uh, to be asked to talk to you. And I, I would like to give a little bit of advice, uh, to people out there, whatever line of sport you like or whatever else it is. And I try to tell people this is, and, and groups I talked to that, that, that isn't even about sports is do what you love doing in life uh, the money nobody's going to ask you on your deathbed about how much money you made or how famous you were or whatever else it is 
you're going to ask yourself, did I get everything out of life I wanted? And did I do what I wanted to do, regardless of money or prestige? Uh, I, I answer that to myself. I've, I've been successful. I've had great failures. I've had wonderful successes. But I've lived a life very few people will live, and, and I'm damn happy about that. Well, yeah, uh, it's yeah. I mean, I, I, I said it like you know. I know you said it's it's an honor for us, and just talking to you. And thank you very much for coming on. And hey, can we have you on again soon? Later during once the football season starts, we'll come on. Sure. We'll talk. We'll cut. We'll talk about the Patriots and the Bears and and uh, oh my God, Scott's Jets. Are- crying out loud play justin fields you know trubisky how many times do you need to to know that he is not the answer and now he's in buffalo so now you got another guy in in there from dallas it it is as one 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 final quick thing on the bears 1930 something george hellas calls my father and says bert he says bert my my, he said, my, my daughter is uh, studying in Philadelphia. And he said, she's dating this McCaskey guy. And he said, you know, I really, I really want to know what the situation is because she's thinking about marrying him. And he said, I, I can hire a private detective. Uh, he said, but, but see what you can find out. Three months later, my father called and said he's okay. So Virginia McCaskey is, is married. Uh, uh, thanks to Bert Bell's uh, detective work. That's the way <laughs> he did it then. Anyway. Uh, all right. Wait. Well, Upton, hey, thank you very much. Stay on the line. We're going to stop recording and we'll talk to you a little bit more uh, and we'll let you go. Okay. Thank you much. Thanks. All right. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Hello, football friends. This is Darren Hayes of the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, and I'd like to invite you to the portal of positive football history, Pigskin Dispatch and PigskinDispatch.com. We talk about everything that centers around the game of American football, expert discussions, the origins of the games, the great players, teams, and coaches, and more, and some great guests and insights from experts. We have new episodes three to four times a week, and you can find us on SportsHistoryNetwork.com, PigskinDispatch.com, or your favorite podcast provider. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.